we're joined in the studio now by Paul Anderson. Paul, of course, is one of our guests of honour here at the festival this year. And Paul, welcome back to Glen Innes. It's the second time I was here 16 years ago. And I could say that with authority because I went home, went out for a, a meal with my wife, and then she went into labour later that evening. And so my, my oldest boy is 16 next Wednesday. Um, <laughs> and he's nearly my height now. It's amazing. When I was here last, he didn't, he was, well, he was there, but he wasn't here. So yeah, it's been 16 years, but it's, it's lovely to be back. It's just a very warm welcome. Folk are very, I like, I like the folk here. I think that's why I enjoyed it so much the last time. Folk are very down to earth, plain spoken. And I think for a farmer son for Aberdeenshire, that just is exactly what you like to, to meet. It's a farming community here, so we've got mm-hmm. a lot in common, I guess. Paul, you're, you are a fiddler of considerable renown, but I'd like to take you back to childhood. When did you first pick up a fiddle? Well, I, I started properly getting lessons when I was nine, but actually the interest started a few years before that. I was about five, and um, my granny and granddad stayed about, about a mile from my parents, um, two different farms, actually, and we would stay at Granny and Granda's quite regular. Well, at least it seems like that now. But we, if Mum and Dad were doing something or away, we'd be at Granny and Granda's. And I'd been put to bed. And at this point, I'm five. My, my wee brother's three. He's six foot five now, by the way. So <laughs> my wee brother's my big brother. But um, we, we shared a bed in what was a box bedroom. where It was known as the glory hole. And it had a, a skylight window. It was a box bedroom where a queen-sized bed and a chest of drawers, and that was it. And I later discovered that the the bed had a horsehair mattress, which I believe would probably be a thing of the past now, but we used to roll it in the middle. Maybe not surprising. But anyway, Granny went down to, to the living room, and the minute we heard that the living room door had closed, David and I got out of bed and were under a bed having a look to see what we could find, because it was flat boxes and interesting things. There was old postcards. And while we were rummaging through, we found this interesting shaped box, and it was a fiddle case. And fickered about until we got it opened and went there, oh, it's a fiddle. And it must have seen enough on the telly, I think, to know what you're supposed to do. You get the bow and you, you rub it across the strings. And so I was fascinated with that. And apparently my granny said that Paul used to disappear upstairs. And far's he gone? And oh, you could hear him scraping on this old fiddle. So the f- fiddle was bought by a relation of my granny's during the Second World War. He had a butcher shop in Arbroath, which is famous for Arbroath smokies, fishing industry. And um, it was really because my great-uncle Bob was away with the Gordon Highlanders during the war, and he played. And my granny wanted a fiddle in the house because it was very much at the time you could folk would visit and the neighbours would see that there's a visitor and they would pop in by. And before you knew what was going on, it was a, essentially, it's a keely, it's a gathering. And at these things, I mean, there'd be conversation going back and forth, but you would find that folk would do a turn. They would, you can, somebody would tell a joke or a story with a funny anecdote at the end, and um, then somebody might sing a song or play the Jew's harp or the trump, was what they used to call it, or the fiddle, or they would clear and have a wee dance. So that, that was, wasn't uncommon at that time, so Granny wanted to make sure if Bob was back, get this fiddle in. The fiddle was bought for 10 shillings in a pub from a man who was selling it to buy whiskey. And that fiddle, have I wondered how it ended up in our broth, because it was made in Paris in 1893. So that's the fiddle I started on, and that is the one I play to this day. So every recording I've ever done, every concert, more or less, that's the fiddle I've played. And so that, that started not just myself, my, my brother, my sister, my cousin Avril, my cousin Gary started accordion, Black Sheep. <laughs> <laughs> There's always one. <laughs> but um, we've now, we're now doing the next generation with nieces and, and, and nephews and things like that as well. So that is a long story to tell you how I started. But I started at the school with a local fiddle teacher, kind of classical music, but kind of Scottish music and Scottish history was I quite prominent in the house. There was always an interest. So it was very much 
with a view that I, I was learning because I wanted to play Scottish music. So uh, within about a year, I, I started going to the local fiddle group, the Bancrestra Spain Reel, which were very well known, great traditional musicians. And I started going there and I, I went with them for years and that was really the start of it. So that, that was why I started. Now, you say you're from a farming community and a farming mm-hmm. family. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's actually my wife, Shona, who's not here, but she's really into genealogy and she, I think she's just nuts, like quite nosy is probably what it is, but once she starts looking, she kind of goes back and has to go and find the next generation back. And so as well as looking at her own family tree, she, she's had a look back at mine and it's quite interesting. I knew quite a lot. I'm kind of lucky. I knew quite, I, I knew great grandparents, but I also knew who my great, great grandparents were because the family talked about it. So it's interesting watching things like who do you think you are? I'm, I'm assuming you see that in Australia. They, some, some of the folk, can, they barely even knew who their grandparents were. And I find that amazing with my background where we, we knew so much of the family. But Shona, kinda, she was looking back and back and you, you start finding kind of farm worker, farm worker. That's pretty much what they did every generation. I think folk hoping for the, the Duke of Argyll or something might turn up for Lord Lyon of Scotland or something. But no, no, they were all very much tied to the land and very much the district that I'm in. So we got back, the furthest back we got without too much digging was back to about 1650 in the same area. That's incredible. Yeah, and yeah. It's, 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 I, quite, I quite like that. I like that because I, I feel very much attached and rooted to where I am in the northeast of Scotland. So it's just an edge of the Cairngorms. It's a bonny area. I mean, it's a lovely area, New England. It's very different because like the flora and fauna, we don't have a lot of kangaroos and snakes. <laughs> we have adders, but when I got brown snakes that are likely to chase you and our spiders are a bit smaller. But you can, there's something about the landscape with the, the rolling hills that it reminds me of home. And of course, you see a lot of Aberdeen Angus cattle. Um, well, at, at least they look like Aberdeen Angus. And that's very much for my part of the world as far as they come from. And that, you know, just the idea of being able to feel like you're part of something that goes back to the 17th century is unknown for us here. We, we need to move to the other side of the world to go that far back for most of us. Quite a, a different experience that you have there. That location, that very small area that you feel so strongly about, that's also where your musical influences come from. Would that be a fair thing to say? I think I think it is. I mean, I could, I could tell you who all my teachers were. You take a lot for your teachers, I think. I mean, Scotland's a wee country. It's never very big, but there's a lot of regional dialects. You can, if you go up to Shetland, it's very different. If you go to the Orkney Islands, they're different for Shetland, but they sound alike, but they're different. Can the West Highlands, you can hear the influence of the Gaelic. And then you go to the northeast of Scotland, we've got this kind of strong Scots accent, um, Edinburgh, Glasgow especially. Most folk would probably be familiar with a Glaswegian accent because... I suppose the big names like a Billy Connolly, Sean Connolly, that there, he's from Edinburgh. Billy Connolly's Glasgow. There's a lot of the actors tend to be from Glasgow, so that would be the accent that would be familiar. But aye, the accent informs style. I think that's why you got regional styles because folk were quite isolated. So that that part of Scotland, yeah, the the, the fiddle music reflects how folks speak and reflects the landscape. It's a rugged place. It used to be a hard place to make a living. That's why a lot of folk came to places like Australia, of course, because it was that big journey would have taken months was a better option than where they were. So you can, it was a hardy breed that emigrated. So you need to be hard to live there in the first place. Of, of all of the music that you play, and I think probably a lot of people feel the same way, the thing I love best is the slow airs. Are they, do you feel like they are also rooted in place? They are. Um, I, I would say, like a slow air is a very personal thing. That's that's what I actually like about them. You could have ten players playing the same tune, and every interpretation would be different but correct because it's it's a matter of taste and interpretation. So that's why I like playing slow airs. I love playing slow airs. Um, of course, a lot of the uh, repertoire is dance music. 
can that's a universal thing every country in the world folk dance so they, they, they need the music to back that up so like our jigs strathspeys and reels hornpipes there are dance tunes but slow airs are like songs without words so there's a they're for listening to and you're supposed to try and convey some sort of story when you're playing them so how you play it will either be successful at putting across that story or not but that's the idea that's what you, you aim for but yeah i love them because just got so much scope for feeling and expression and you talk about dance music and one of my daughters a long time ago was a highland dancer and the costume that she liked best was the aboyne costume Mm -hmm. and aboyne is just down the road from your place right it's just um five miles just five miles i'm actually in the committee for the aboyne highland games so that and funnily enough my my granny bless her passed away at the end of last year she was 99 and so a good innings so to speak but i used to go and play for her before covid i used to go and play for her and also other folk that were in the care home that she was. My, my parents were adamant they were going to look after her, but she just got too frail, and the doctor said she needs more care. So, so that was that. And I actually um, played to a woman that was in that same care home who was the first girl who wore their boy in Highland dress. So, um, I that which struck me as like quite an amazing thing. It's like, gosh. It's worldwide now that the Boyne Highland dress is very famous. And then there's the woman who was the first one to wear it at the Boyne Highland Games. That's amazing. Absolutely fantastic story. So the East Coast fiddle tradition is different from the West Coast fiddle tradition, isn't it? And I've spoken with the members of Kajafi who, of course, play in the West Coast style and their music's very influenced by piping. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that some of the things you play are related to pipe music as well. Would that be a, a point of difference between East Coast and West Coast, or is it more subtle than that? Uh, it's it's more it's much more subtle. It's actually really difficult to explain. Um, I think in the West Coast piping is it's more on influence, probably I would say. But at the same time, kind of some of the most influential fiddlers for the the northeast of Scotland, like a James Scott Skinner, Hector McAndrew, um, loved pipe music and they knew are the great players of their day and a lot of the great pipers admired them and I have to say when I was a boy a lot of pipers didn't care for fiddlers playing pipe tunes because they felt like they hacked them up and they didn't have the right flow and feel and, and interpretation but fiddlers play pipe tunes there's a lot of great pipe tunes which is amazing because they only have nine notes you think they should have used them all by now but they keep finding combinations but it's yeah yeah you'd be it'd be fair to say the west coast there is more on influence but gaelic song as well again i think it's it comes down to language and forms it scotland the different areas used to be quite isolated from each other northeast of scotland you know these big mountain ranges separating you for the west and the, the south and you had to go through mountain passes that were impassable in the winter time and then you're on the coast i mean you find actually some fishing villages that can be two miles apart and they talk slightly different and they're only two miles but they did a mix uh, traditionally things have opened up quite a bit more but i think location and dialects probably the biggest factor and then maybe in the east coast you had kind of more access to bigger populations and you got folk like james scott skinner who was massively popular in his day i mean he toured north america first scotsman to commercially record played for queen victoria just about every yeah, the royal albert hall he played at the london palladium so he's for a fiddler it was he was remarkably popular and that had a big influence in the folk in the northeast of scotland and i remember speaking to folk that heard him play and knew him and they would never have said oh i idolize him but they clearly did you could tell by how they spoke. There was nobody like Skinner, so so he had a huge influence on the, especially on the East Coast, but kind of filtered in the West as well. And is your line of transmission through your teachers? Do, does that line go back to Skinner? No, well, no, not really. Actually, it's funnily enough. Although I used to play with the Bankry Strasbourg Reel, 
Society, and they were set up in large part to promote the music of James Scott Skinner, because he came from the village. He was born there in 1843, and he's buried in Aberdeen. I reckon there was 40,000 folk lined the streets of Aberdeen when his coffin passed by, which is amazing. I kind of think of any Scottish politicians that could man, command so much respect. I mean, that might be a common thing around the world, actually, but he was really popular. So he, he definitely influenced the like folk for these side in the northeast. But a large part of how I play came from my main teacher, Douglas Lawrence. And Douglas was um, the most acclaimed pupil of a man called Hector McAndrew. Now, Hector famously did a documentary where he taught Yehudi Menyon great virtuoso how to play Scottish fiddle music. Hector was the master and Yehudi was the pupil, so he was he was very well respected. After the time of Scott Skinner, Hector was probably the, the finest exponent of Scottish fiddle music, who actually his father was a great piper, so he had the piping tradition. His idol was George S. McLennan, one of the greatest pipers ever, and so he, he, he had a lot of piping into his fiddle music as well. So my teacher was taught by Hector, and then for Hector you can get right back to Neil Gow. And well, Neil, Neil Gow, he was born in... 1727, he's regarded as the father of Scottish fiddle music. He played for Bonnie Prince Charlie. He met Robert Burns. Robert Burns came to his house and they sat and they talked about music and poetry and they played and they had a drum. If there was one point in history as a fiddler that I could have been at, that it would have been that day. Um, Wouldn't that be amazing? So that, and that takes us back very neatly to a period in history that's, of course, crucial for Scottish music, and that's the Jacobite period. That um, spawned a lot of music, didn't it? Well, I suppose, uh, in modern era, you get political commentary done through folk song, or like the 60s. Think about like some of the songs that were written about protesting against the Vietnam War, things like that. You can if Folk are upset about politics of the day. Quite often the musicians will put it in words or put it to music. And it was a turbul- turbulent time in Scotland, and actually it, was, it had a a lasting impact on the Scottish psyche, it'd be fair to say. But off the back of that, I mean, one of the things that happened was there was a, there was a lot of pressure on Highland culture because it was seen as being the route for the rebellion was sown and all all of the Jacobite rebellions, which started back in the 1600s. And so there was a, they were terrified, actually, of them and thought they needed to root this out. So Highland culture suffered, whether it be the language, the music, the dress, Everything kind of the, the men were very prone to going and cattle raids and carrying arms. That was banned. Wearing a tartan was banned for a long time. And playing the bagpipes. There was a case where one of the pipers for the Jacobite army was up on trial in Carlisle. A lot of the Jacobite prisoners after Culloden were taken to Carlisle and tried there. And his um, his defence really lay on the fact that he was a musician. He wasn't he wasn't fighting. He was playing the pipes. But the judge said that you are actually inspiring the troops to heights of valour, and it's actually an instrument of war. Was and this McCrimmond? No, no, well, no, that was a different. There was every 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 clan regiment had its own piper, uh-huh. can very linked to, to area and family. Quite different for the modern era, actually. But at the time, fighting with your family was seen as being you didn't want to look bad. You wouldn't want to run because. It'll all get but you'd hardly be able to go home. You kinda in one hand it was seen as being kinda great bonding thing where you had people of your community and family round about you, but of course you could lose an entire community and that's what happened at the Battle of Culloden. There's a cottage that still remains outside Tarland where I comfy. There was seven Fackersons all killed. Father and six sons all killed at the Battle of Culloden within the same period. So we're getting into a different thing here, but uh, but the, yeah, it was seen as being um, a weapon of war. So the playing the pipes was prescribed as well. And it wasn't until they they started trying to recruit in the Highlands, 
with the aid of the clan chiefs who got their land back, eventually were pardoned, and they became very, very good British citizens by this point. They were, they were tied to the, the, the regime, and so they heavily recruited in their home areas. And so some of the well-known regiments that you, you see now came out of that period, and so they all had pipers. And so for a lot of men, it was how to express that military culture and the music. If I join the regiment, I can do that. Otherwise, I'm not. I'm going to be a labourer on a state. But, but going back to McCrimmon, um, Donald Ban McCrimmon was killed in that period. He was regarded as the king of the pipers, the greatest piper of the day, came from a long lineage. His clan chief, McLeod and McLeod, sided with the Hanoverians. Much to McCrimmon wrote a, a tune in celebration for Bonnie Prince Charlie, and then he was horrified to find that his chief was going to the other side, and he, he was duty-bound follow him. So there was an incident called the Rout of Moy, just outside Inverness, seven miles from Inverness, and some of the, the kind of loyal to the Hanoverian regiments had discovered that Bonnie Prince Charlie was just down the road, and they decided to go and try and get him in the night. And they were having a, it was like a party in Inverness, and one of the women that was hosting the party heard the gossip, and she sent one of her young servant lads to go to Moy House to warn Bonnie Prince Charlie, and so he ran down, and he got there just before the, the army turned up. So Bonnie Prince Charlie was taken out the back with, with the, the forces that he had, and there was seven men stood firing muskets at the Hanoverian army. There was about 1,500 of them, and these seven guys, and they didn't know what was, what was going on. And McLeod's piper, McCrimmon, was standing piping beside his chief, and he got shot. He was the only man shot in that incident, and the, the pipers on both sides, because the Highland regiments like the Argyles, refused to fight, and they refused to play until they got time to mourn McCrimmon. That such is, was his legend. So there you go. That's such a wonderful story. And of course, the lament for McCrimmon is a beautiful piece of music. Well, he wrote it himself. Oh, and then the McCrimmons are, it's now uncommon in the Highlands, the kind of second sight. The McCrimmons were supposed to have had the, the gift to foresee their own doom, their own death. And he wrote it for himself. Wow. And apparently, he, as he was shot, and he, he kind of propped himself up and played as he was dying. And it was the tune he wrote for himself, McCrimmon's Lament. And one of his close friends went back to Sky and relayed the information to his wife. And she asked him what he was singing and he kind of hummed it. And she said, that, that's a tune he wrote for himself. And that's where the story comes from. So it's quite a pout. I might play it this weekend, actually. It's a good story. It's a great story. <laughs> and, and it is a lovely piece of music. Paul, you've brought your fiddle today. I'm very pleased to mm -hmm. see. Will you play a piece for us? I will. Have you got anything you fancy? Or is there, <laughs> should I just pick myself? Well, maybe we should play the Lament for McCrimmon. Um, <laughs> I think, I think you should choose. Perhaps something you wrote yourself would be lovely. Okay, well, I'm going to play, let me think. It's a tune called The Beauty of Cremar Before Me, which I wrote one night, sitting in front of the house looking at the scenery. So it's inspired by the landscape. So I'm going to play that, I think.
That was absolutely beautiful. Paul Anderson playing The Beauty of Cremar Before Me, his own composition. And what a treat for us to have an exclusive recording of that here in the two CBD studios. 